Well, good morning. School has started at Biola University, and I was walking across campus, and a student came up behind me and said, uh, Hi, Professor Mielhoff. I turn around. It's my son. <laughs> He's a freshman at Biola. I just looked at him. I said, Do not talk to me in public. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, We are going to get to the book of James, but we're just not going to do it right away. I'm going to give two sermons that kind of prepare us to get to the book of James. And I'm going to use a concept uh, that psychologists have identified that I think will really help us focus on what the book of James wants to get at. So today I'm going to be preaching from Psalm 103. Next week I'll be preaching from Psalm 73. But the concept I want us to utilize is what psychologists call intrapersonal communication. Now, you know it by a different name, and that name is self-talk. Self-talk is one of the most defining features about you. Uh, Psychologists will say it's the predictor of whether you're successful in life or business, marriage, parenting. Uh, It is what will define you as a thriving person is what is this mental loop that you play in your head 24-7. Psychologists say that this really takes off at age six and that you never stop asking yourself three basic questions. One, how do I look in comparison to other people? How do I do in comparison to other people? And how important am I in comparison to other people? And we we ask this all the time. We get our cues uh, from culture. It is so weird to see me with hair. I just think, (laughs) I've really forgotten almost what that looks like. But... So, um, we always do it in comparison to what culture gives us is really important. We ask that question, how do I look and compare to what culture will say this is what the norm is, or this is how we define masculinity or femininity. We always have status symbols, especially here in Orange County. So we're constantly asking these kind of questions, and the answers we get is what really makes up our self-talk. We just finished watching the Olympics. Um, And one of the persons I was following was Kaylee Harrison, uh, is uh, the first woman in the United States ever to win a a gold medal in judo. She did that four years ago, and she defended her gold medal in Rio. She wrote an article on self-talk, and in it she shared what her self-talk was walking into her first match. Judo matches are four minutes long, and if you score what they call an epon, which is a, a, a clear throw, the match is over. That could be in the first 30 seconds. So think about that. You've trained four years and maybe a lifetime, and your match could be over in, in uh, 40 seconds, and you're done. You're out of medal contention right away. So walking onto the mat, this was her self-talk. This is my day. This is my purpose. I'm not afraid to win. Kaylee Harrison, Olympic champion, you want this? You take it. You work for this. Prove it. You are the best, the best, the best. Kaylee Harrison, Olympic champion, this is my day. But in the article, she talks about people who don't have good self-talk. Athletes who are scared to death to perform at the Olympics. Uh, They hire sports psychologists. Multi-million dollar industry is a psychologist who will help you develop positive self-talk. Now, why will James be interested in this? In the book of James, James is going to ask interesting questions. He's going to say, what's your self-talk like when you hit difficulties? When trials hit, 
Do you question God's love for you? Do you question God's goodness? What's your self-talk like when the hard times hit? Second, um, when God tells you this is true religion in my sight, doing this activity, what's our reaction to that? Are we disappointed? Are we not interested in doing what God says is true religion? Uh, What is our relationship to the American dream? James tackles that. He says to business people, what is your attitude towards making money? What is your attitude towards Um, your self-identity in business? And then lastly, what's your self-talk like with the return of Christ? Are you interested in the return of Christ? Does the return of Christ make any difference in your self-talk? So this morning, we're going to take a look at Psalm 103, which to me identifies self-talk, positive self-talk. Next week, we're going to take a look at Psalm 73, that shows negative self-talk that has taken root and how the psalmist pulls himself out will be very interesting. How do you correct your self-talk? But first, let's take a look at self-talk in Psalm 103. He starts by saying this, bless the Lord. That word bless means to speak well of. We get the English word eulogize from that word, to speak well of a person. But notice that this is King David who is going through a bit of a funk, is what commentators would say. Yet, he is going to address his self-talk. So, even though he doesn't feel like blessing the Lord, he chooses to do it. Boy, that's a good word from psychologists. That your actions really do change your attitude. So here he is, he doesn't feel like blessing the Lord, but he's going to start doing it to speak well of God and all of him, all of my soul, all that is within me. So David is saying, my faith isn't just merely intellectual, nor is it merely emotional. It's all of me. So in those moments where we don't feel like blessing the Lord, we need to get our whole body involved. It's good to stand up. It's good to kneel down. It's good to raise your hands. It's good to get your heart engaged, all of you to get engaged. Yeah, you can be too emotional, I think, sometimes, but the opposite is that we're too intellectual about God. He's a subject to be studied. So the best thing to do is get all of you involved in this worship that uh, the psalmist is calling us to. By the way, he's not the only psalmist to do this. He's not the only one to say, I need to address my self-talk towards God right now. Look at this psalm. In Psalm 42, the psalmist says, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? So literally addressing the state of his soul, saying, I am in despair right now and I need to talk to myself. Another psalmist says this, I will remember my song in the night. In the Hebrew, that night, it has two connotations. One, no doubt he's talking about evening, but more importantly, he's talking about what some of us call a dark night of the soul, that, that you are deeply despairing when it comes to God. You, you're questioning his goodness. This psalmist says, I'll remember the song you gave me in the night. I will meditate with all my heart. Again, full-bodied worship. We get our body involved when we worship, and my spirit will ponder. So David uh, addresses something Charles Spurgeon talked about. Spurgeon preached in the 1800s. He was called the Prince of Preachers. He talks about an interesting thing that happened at the fall that makes us Uh, poor rememberers of God's goodness. This is what Spurgeon says, fascinating quote. By a strange perversity engendered by the fall, it, memory, treasures up the refuse of the past and permits priceless treasures to lie neglected. It is tenacious of grievances 
and holds benefits all too loosely. So Spurgeon is saying this. Because of the fall, you have this tendency with your self-talk. And that is, when it goes south, it really goes south. So your neighbor, your friend, your spouse, your roommate, your child, when he or she does something that you don't like and your nose gets out of whack, we tend to do what psychologists call tunnel vision. I only see one aspect of you anymore, and it's the negative aspect. Uh, You betrayed my trust. Uh, I counted on you and you let me down. Now I don't see anything good about that person. I just cling to the bad self-talk. Boy, this is really true of God. Sometimes when God doesn't come through in the way we wanted him to, our self-talk can go south very quickly. You don't love me. You never provide for me. You love other people more than me. So Spurgeon is saying, because of the fall, just know that when our noses get out of whack, we tend to be all good, all bad people, right? I love my spouse, everything A to Z, but when he or she disappoints me, A to Z, it's all bad. I was speaking at a marriage conference And a woman came up to me at the break, and she said, my husband doesn't do one thing for this marriage. I was like, wow. And I said to her, can I ask you a question? Is he here? And she said, yes. I said, well, couldn't that, like, be one thing? (laughs) And she looked at me honestly, and she went, (laughs) But that happens, right? Our self-talk can get out of whack just like that. So keep that in mind what Spurgeon is saying. We have a propensity to forget the good and focus on the bad. So the psalmist does this in Psalm 103, verse 2, and forget none of his benefits. Now, as I list the benefits, I want you to pay attention in the order of the benefits because I'm going to make a point at the end of the sermon that I think is really important what David is trying to get to. I think further this is augmented by what Jesus will teach and what Paul will teach. But here are his benefits. Who pardons all of your iniquities. In Hebrew, that word iniquities has two connotations. One, it's your sin. So he has um, pardoned all of your sin. But second, the guilt attached to the sin. See, Satan loves to play a trick with us. He loves to say, how can you say you're a Christian when you just did that? You know better. You've been doing this a long time. How how can you act like that and still think that God loves you? So the shame that is attached to the sin is never from God. It's never from the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit can convict you of something. But if there's ever shame attached to it, that's not coming from the Holy Spirit. That's coming from Satan. See, all of us have self-talk, right? All of us go throughout the entire week and we do things. We think, oh, I can't believe I did that. Well, imagine, you know, being a speaker, in front of this church. I mean, my self-talk can be, what right do I have to stand in front of you and say anything? I was getting out of, I do Kung Fu, I've mentioned that before, and I'm coming home from Kung Fu, and there's a person in front of me going so slow. I know he or she's on the cell phone or texting or something, then stops. I just, I just laid on the horn. Kung Fu fist five on the horn. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, oh crud, that could be an EV free person. So I turned into Target very quickly. (laughs) But you know, that's true of all of us, is our self-talk can be like, I'm not worthy of any of this. Well, first thing the psalmist says, first thing um, David says is, no, all your iniquity has been dealt with, and all the shame attached to it. All your sin has been dealt with. Isn't that amazing? When Jesus died 2,000 years ago, how much of your sin was in the future? All of it. He has dealt with the past, the present, and the future. It's gone. And the psalmist says, remind yourself. Let your self-talk be changed by the fact that you may beat yourself up over this sin, but God's not. 
He loves you and all of that iniquity has been dealt with. And then he says this. Who redeems your life from the pit. The pit in the Old Testament refers to death. So he's saying you will be redeemed from death. And that word redeem is very specific. Uh, Later in the New Testament, they'll say you've been redeemed from Satan. In the Old Testament, you've been redeemed from the effects of the curse. Uh, Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan to sin. They did. Now spiritual and physical death enters planet Earth. And so he's saying you're going to be redeemed from the effects of the curse that um, you'll one day rise again. And again, this is hugely important for us as Christians. St. Athanasius, one of the great church fathers, said, this is what separates us from everybody else. We do not fear death. We mourn death. We mourn when a loved one dies. But we do not fear death. Remember what Paul says in the New Testament. Man, I want to be with God. But I see benefit of being here and ministering to other people. But if it was up to me, I would rather be with God right now. So just know that at the end of your life, you're going to be reunited with God. I had a friend of mine from Athletes in Action who wrote a great blog on the opening and closing ceremonies of the Olympics. The most watched part of the Olympics, worldwide audience, is the opening and closing. And he said this. I thought it was great. He said, you know what? At the end of human history, there's going to be a closing ceremony like none other. And every tribe and nation is going to be represented. And all of God's children is going to be there. And it's going to be powerful. Remember, Jesus says, I'm going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. Uh, The old things are going to pass. Pain, mourning, death. Boy, what a great time. And we need to look forward to that appropriately to say this is not all there is to human existence. This really is, in the light of eternity, just a blip of our existence, and we need to um, hang on to that. He then says, this God crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. I love that. Uh, I've been studying this passage for a year in my own personal devotions. Loving kindness, we'll talk about it in a second. But I get this image, and this is David, right, saying he crowns you with loving kindness. He'd be aware of what the symbolism. But I had this mental image. I saw a YouTube clip that I thought was fascinating of, of something President Obama did. And, and it was this right here where he's putting the Medal of Honor onto one of our veterans. And when I saw that, I immediately thought of God draping you with loving kindness. And, and again, there's a really cool moment where President Obama leans over and whispers something in his ear. And later, this soldier was asked, what did President Obama say? And he said, no, I think I'll keep that between me and the president. But imagine God draping you with loving kindness, then whispering something in your ear. I imagine that. I envision that. Sometimes my contemplative prayer times. God leaning over, whispering in my... What does he whisper? I'll keep that. No, here's what he says. He says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, immediately I want to counter God. Immediately I want to say, oh, God, you know, I beeped at a person. I did this. I did this. I got frustrated. I did this and this. And God's saying, hey, I know. I know. And I still drape you with my loving kindness. I still drape you with my compassion. Boy, that's powerful uh, to hang on to. And then the psalmist, uh, so let's go back to loving kindness for a second. It's what we call hased, and It's a beautiful concept of God's love. And, and here's what this loving kindness that God drapes you with looks like. One, it's not merely love, but it's royal love. Hey, don't miss what the psalmist said in the beginning of the psalm. He said, I want to bless your holy name. Men and women, this is where I think the psalmist had something that we don't. I think we're too familiar with God. This is my personal opinion. This is me. But I really think that we've become too casual with God. 
And I, I think we're reaping the negative effects of that. The Old Testament writers never lost sight of the fact that God was transcendent. By the way, the New Testament writers, so when Jesus teaches them how to pray, this is what he says. Our Father who art in heaven, and the disciples are like, wait, wait, stop. What? I'm supposed to call Jehovah Father? And Jesus is like, absolutely. And they say, well, I can't, I can't do that. I, I can't call Jehovah Father. No, you need to, because that is what he is to you. He is your Father. They were so uncomfortable with that. We're incredibly comfortable with it. Remember last year I preached on this word Abba that I think is really misinterpreted? Abba never meant daddy. It never meant that. It meant um, a, a very endearing term you would give to a, a father figure. A, a very intimate term. But think about that. So Jehovah isn't just your father. It's the most intimate um, version of father. But it's, it was never daddy. It was this... I respect you, and I'm amazed that you love me and care for me. So you know my kids have a good day in my house? They get to call me Dr. Tim. I mean, you know, just kind of a <laughs> informal. Okay, so <clears throat> this is what, it's a royal love. The more we retain the kingship of God, the more we're blown away how he treats us. The more we're blown away that he's so intimate with us. Second, it's not merely kindness. It is dependable kindness. Listen, I, I'm not always a great husband. I'm not always a great father. I, I get frustrated at my students sometimes. I have good days and bad days on a scale of kindness. God never does. It is always dependable. He's never harsh with you. Does he correct you? Absolutely, the Holy Spirit does. But it's never out of rage. It's never out of anger. And it's never harsh. He lovingly will confront what you're doing. And then last, it's not merely affection, but it's committed affection. Remember what Paul says in Romans? He says, listen, at the right time, Jesus died for you. And by the way, let me describe what you were like when Jesus died for you. You were an enemy of God. You were ungodly. You were a sinner. But at the right moment, Jesus died for you. He knows exactly what you're like. So he knows you on your worst day, but he is absolutely committed to you. There's nothing you can do to drive him away. I remember one time a preacher said, and it just registered with me. He said, God will never love you any more or any less than he does right now. Think about that. Never any more, any less if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've accepted Jesus. Why? Because that love is rooted in Jesus, not you. I love that because I have good days and bad days. But I, I don't have to earn God's love. It's not like I'm moving up the God's love scale because I had a really good day. You know, Mike Gary preached a sermon. I, I, I've never forgotten this sermon. He said this, what's the best day for you to sin if you're a Christian? I hope you remember this sermon. He said, in my estimation, Monday is the best day to sin. Why? Because you got the whole week to get God's favor back. And again, Mike was critiquing that, saying that's absurd that we have this attitude. Oh, thank goodness I sinned on a Tuesday, a Monday, because now I got time to get God's favor back so I can go back to church. No, no, no. God's love for you is constant. His loving kindness is not like our loving kindness. And then he says this. Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth will be renewed like an eagle. But boy, this is problematic. Because how do you define good things? James is going to want to hit that full blast. James is going to want to say, do you view... Um, commercial success as God's favor upon you. Do you think, because your business is successful, James will say, that that's God's goodness? 
This is a powerful critique. As Americans, we have a very specific idea of what God's goodness looks like. Our church is flourishing. Uh, My children are healthy. I'm successful in my career. Uh, We were able to afford a vacation home. Uh, This and this and this and this. And that's God's goodness. And God is saying, that is not my criteria for goodness. Because guess what? Kids get sick and even die. Uh, Economies hit rock bottom. You could get sick and you could be in a car accident. Do not judge my goodness on the lesser. Judge it on the greater. And we'll talk more about that at the end of this sermon. Now, if you were paying attention, you notice I skipped one. I skipped this one. Who heals all your diseases. How many of you are uh, chronic pain sufferers? Raise your hand. Okay, I'm a chronic migraine sufferer. How many of you know of a believer who suffers from a disease or some chronic something? Show of hands. Yeah. So what in the world does the psalmist mean? Now, in the same way, he says, all your iniquities have been dealt with. But it seems like he also says, who heals all your diseases. So what's the distinction between the two? Well, let me just say that theologians are split on how to interpret this passage. There's option A, option B. Option A is this. It's the here and the not yet that you hear in theology all the time. Will God heal all diseases? Yes, he'll do it in heaven. He won't necessarily do it here on earth. So notice how it's situated. Who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit? Put those two together in combination. God will heal all your diseases when he raises all of us from the dead. In the New Jerusalem, there'll be no sickness, mourning, crying, or pain. The first things have gone away. The new things have come. That is one interpretation. I think it's a a valid interpretation. It makes a lot of sense. There's other reasons within the psalm that I tend to think that is not what David's talking about. He is not using the word diseases the way we use the word diseases. Now, where do I get this from? Okay, we're going to go to school for five minutes. Okay? And at the end of the five minutes, I hope, I hope the payoff will be, we'll see the powerful way that Jesus now treats us. Okay? So, in the psalm, we get some clues. In a very interesting section of Psalm 103, we get this. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. So it seems that David is semi-asking the question, it does, God has strived against us in the past. Is he, there a possibility he will strive against us now, in the present? So two things that can answer this. One, the Hebrew noun diseases and the verb are used in Deuteronomy 29 in the sense of cursings, not physical diseases. So what happened is Israel was under what we call a conditional covenant. This conditional covenant um, meant that you entered into a deal with God, a covenant, an agreement, and God would say, I'm going to fulfill my side of it, but what happens when you don't fulfill your side of it? Now, God knew Israel would not always fulfill her side of the covenant. So that's why he instituted the temple as a way to deal with these curses, But there were times when God allowed the world... Now, this is a hard teaching in Scripture. 
He allows the world to see what happens to a nation when you do not follow your covenant, when you break your covenant with me. That's what we get in Deuteronomy 29. So Deuteronomy 29, and all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land, Israel? Why this great outburst of anger? So God, because he loves humanity, says, look at the nation of Israel. Do not enter into a covenant with me and treat that lightly. Now, God was gracious to Israel and developed the temple system of dealing with the curse and the effects of the curse. But he's angry at the children of Israel how they started to treat the curse. This anger is seen in Jesus. In Jesus, remember he walks to the temple and he says, you've turned my temple, my father's temple, into a den of robbers? It wasn't that they were merely selling stuff. It's that they were treating the temple system as a get-out-of-jail card. In other words, I can live any way I want as a Hebrew because I know my sacrifices will take care of my sin. Right? I I can do whatever I want because all I got to do is go do a sacrifice and God will be okay with me. And Jesus is saying, do not treat the sacrificial system that way. That That is an affront to God that you would think that you would treat it as a get out of jail card. So Abraham enters into a covenant with God. Remember Genesis 15? In Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, and this is what they used to do in Near Eastern cultures, I'm going to make a covenant with you, a conditional covenant, so I want you to take some animals, I want you to cut them in half, I want you to dig a ditch and put the carcasses on either side, and then you walk down the middle and I walk with you and we both enter into this covenant. Now why the, the carcasses cut in half? Take a hard look to your left and right. This is what will happen to you if you break the covenant. What a powerful image. Now again, Israel would break the covenant and there was only way to get a release from the curse was from the sacrificial system. Now, just for a second, can we all take a collective sigh of relief that we're not under conditional covenants? How many times have you made a deal with God? I've made many deals with God, right? You fall into that sin that you just can't seem to get victory over but, and, and you just say to God, I promise I will never do that sin again. I promise I'll never do it. And then you do it. You promise you're going to be a better husband, wife, parent, roommate, neighbor, and you don't. Well, imagine if God said, okay, cause and effect. Here's what's going to happen. See, we're not under a conditional covenant anymore. We're under what they call a grant covenant. Here's what a grant covenant is. Absolutely, the carcasses are right there, and I'm walking through it. Guess who's walking with me? Jesus. He's walking as one of us, by the way. Then what happens is when I don't fulfill my part of the covenant, guess who reaps the negative consequences? Jesus. Jesus says, I'm with you in this covenant. And when you don't fulfill it, I take the penalty. That's why Jesus is in Gethsemane saying, Father, if there's any will, let this cup pass from me. The cup represents God's uh, anger. He's on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because you didn't fulfill the covenant. And yet, God takes all of that righteous anger and he places it on Jesus Christ and it literally kills him. That's the doctrine of propitiation. God takes that righteous anger and he places it on Jesus. All of humanity placed on Jesus their sin. That's what we call a grant covenant. And guess what reaction it should spur in us is is supreme thankfulness. Saying, God, thank you. I was spared through your son, Jesus Christ. 
Yeah, I still mess up. I'm not fully sanctified. But Jesus took all the penalty for my sin. We do the Christian life not to get more of God's love. We do the Christian life out of supreme thank you to God. God, thank you for your loving kindness and your compassion even at my worst moments. Then he goes on with God's love. In verse 12 he says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Then he says this, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so does the Lord have compassion on those who fear him. I have three boys. They were in the second service. Boy, they can frustrate me. Your parents of teenagers, of teenage boys. Hello. I've never written a book on parenting. I haven't been asked. Imagine that, right? And there are times, my kids, I'm just mad. I'm just frustrated. You just look at them, you're like, what? You mailed the dog to Guam? What? Right? But, but even, and I'm an imperfect father. My kids, there's always a soft spot. Always a soft spot. They're my kids. Love them. God looks at you at your worst moment. Worst moment. You made that promise 10 million times. I'm going to be a better Christian. I'm going to be a better husband. I blew it as being a father, a mother. I, I, right? And even at your worst moment, God looks at you. And as a father has compassion on his children, God has compassion on you. He has a soft spot for you. See, that's what Jesus was trying to get at with the parables. In Luke chapter 15, he's being pressed by the Pharisees. Tell me what God's love is like, is what he's asked in Luke 15. This is what Jesus tells his three favorite stories. He says, when a woman loses one coin, what does she do? She tears up the house looking for the coin. When a a shepherd loses one sheep, what does he do? He leaves the 99 and goes for the one. When a father has one son, go rogue, go prodigal. What does he do? He runs when the son comes back. One, one, one. Jesus loves humanity and he does it one person at a time. Does Jesus love the church? Yes, but he does it one person at a time. He has a soft spot for you. When he looks at you, he sees all your imperfections, and, but he loves you because he knows it. That's why the psalmist says he has compassion on us. He knows where you've come from, and he knows your self-talk. And he knows the only way you're ever going to really change is, and we say this at marriage conferences all the time, guys, the only way you're going to improve this marriage right now is you've got to be committed for life because there's no way you're going to fix this if you've if you got a backdoor strategy. So you've got to be committed for life, right? If you're committed and you take divorce off the table, I think we can fix this marriage. So God is saying to us right now, guess what? I'm not going anywhere. I'm committed. It's, it's royal love. It's kindness. I'm not going anywhere. I will never. So Paul even asked that question in Romans. He goes, what can separate us from the love of Christ? And, and he imagines everything he can imagine. And then he says, nothing can separate So the only way you're going to grow in this Christian life is you have to have a base of acceptance. I really believe that. Now, I was leading a Bible study with a bunch of uh, basketball players from Braille-Linda High School. And and I was doing this thing about God's love. And one kid, it was great, it was perfect. He goes, well, can I just be honest with you? I said, sure, be honest. He goes, well, if God loves me as much as he ever will, it's never going to improve, never going to decrease, right? I said, yes. Well, I can do whatever the blank I want. 
I said, you know what? There's a little bit of truth to that. Because you're a follower of Christ. There's a little bit of truth to that. But is that the response you want to give to God? Right? No, because you're free, serve him. You never have to look over your shoulder again. Did I blow it and God's not with me anymore? No. God's loving kindness, the psalmist says, it's everywhere. You can never exhaust his loving kindness. To me, that's freedom that I can pursue Christ because he's never going to leave me. Just as a father has compassion on his children, God has compassion on you. I think it's a beautiful thing. Application. Number one, retain the holiness of God. Remember what he said? Um, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all within me. Bless his holy name. The more we know this is the sovereign God of the universe, the more it blows me away that the way he treats us. So one of my idols is a guy named J.P. Moreland. He's a philosopher at Biola University. He's easily one of the top Christian philosophers in the world today, and we need to pray for him. He has a very rare form of cancer, and he's battling it right now. We happen to teach next to each other. I haven't write a book with J.P. He invited me to write a book with him. So here's J.P. Moreland, my liege. I mean, the man is revered in Christian circles. So I'm teaching my class. The guy walks through my door in my classroom, gives me a bear hug. Boom. And he's like, man, how are you? I said, well, I'm good. How are you? You got cancer. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing well. And then he walks out the door and I turn around my students. I'm saying, yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's J.P. Moreland or J to his friends. You know what I mean? Wow. But if we retain that it's J.P. Moreland, and he walks in and gives you a big hug? That's amazing. If we retain that God is transcendent, he's holy, then the fact that he says, hey, call me Abba, we're like, really? Yeah, really. That's a beautiful relationship. Number two, spiritual benefits trump physical benefits. The psalmist wants to say this. Remember, I'm going to list all of his benefits, and what does he do? Number one, all your iniquities have been forgiven. Number two, your diseases are going to be dealt with. Uh, Number three, he's going to redeem you from the pit, and he's crowned you with loving kindness and compassion, and oh yeah, he'll give you good things. As Americans, we inverse it. We say God is good because I'm pursuing the American dream and getting it. He's good because I have my looks. I'm good because I do really well in comparison to other people, and it's good because my book got published. And God says, nope, that's not the list. Because guess what? Your books always don't get published. Kids get sick. You get sick. People die in this fallen world. Do not judge me on the lesser. Judge me on the greater. Well, what's the greater? Paul says this. He who did not spare his own son for you, how will he not also with you freely give all things? But don't inverse it. Remember the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, yeah, give us our daily bread. We inverse it as Americans. No, give me my daily bread, and I'll know you love me. And this is really true of us in America, and particularly true of us in California. But we cannot judge God on the lesser. He said, listen, be content with what I gave you, and that is loving kindness and compassion and the forgiveness of all your iniquities. Really? That's it? Well, that ought to be important to you. And boy, that's a hard lesson to learn for me. Start the day with loving kindness. 
I love this. Many of the psalmists, when talking about loving kindness, pair it with the morning. Uh, Listen to what one psalmist says. But for me, I shall sing of thy strength. Yes, I shall sing joyfully of thy loving kindness in the morning. For thou hast been my stronghold. So our psalmist, David, in Psalm 103, talks about loving kindness. And he says this. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward us who fear him. So, here's my application for the rest of the week. Tomorrow morning, when you get up, And your self-talk, don't let it be dominated by how your job's going, how relationships are going, what's your grade point, and all that kind of stuff. First thing you do in the morning is I want you to go outside, I want you to look up. And I want you to remind yourself, self-talk wise, as high as the heavens are, this is how great God's loving kindness is towards me. Now look past the the smog, okay? Look up, and the heavens is what David is saying. Now here's something I want you to focus on. David didn't know about cosmology the way we know about cosmology. When David said, hey, it's as high as the heavens, he's just looking up and what you can see from human sight. Today, with all the great scientific discoveries we have, we know how vast a universe is. So I'm going to show you a really interesting YouTube clip done by Google in which a woman is laying on the grass and the camera pans back from her and just goes galaxy after galaxy after galaxy. Now, to make this even more powerful, how long does it take to to, um, um, travel a light year? If a space shuttle took off from planet Earth today and went 18,000 miles per hour, it would take 37,200 years to go a light year. So tomorrow morning, your self-talk is going to start by looking up, and you're going to say as high as a telescope can go and NASA can go and beyond is how great God's love and kindness is towards me. So watch this video and we're going to sing how great thou art afterwards. <laughs> 